from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Working Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. Really glad you're here. Listening in on the conversation we have every week, exploring all those things related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program. I spend most of my days now running a management consulting and training company called Total Leadership. If you visit totalleadership.org, you can find information there, lots of free stuff on how we help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. Skeptical? Check it out. It's real. It works. Well, um, you know that you can find new episodes of our show Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. If you've listened before, if you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. Uh, it's 5 p.m. Thursdays, Eastern Time on Sirius XM Channel 132, and you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me, I'm at Stu Friedman. My guest today is a human resources executive at a company with close to 80,000 people in more than 130 countries. She said in other interviews that it's vital to a firm's business strategy that its people experience the culture as inclusive and vibrant and their leaders as inspiring. Well, this is something that listeners of this show will not find unfamiliar, but she's got a, a really distinctive perspective on these issues and how to make them real. It's her passion for leadership that we're going to be primarily focusing on today. I'm delighted to introduce Carmen Fernandez, who is vice president and chief people officer at Marsh McLennan, one of the world's leading professional services firms in the area of risk strategy and people. Carmen, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you so much, Sue. Thank you for having me. And I just want to say it is a pleasure to be with you. I have been reading your work for many years, uh, and I just want to thank you for the impact it's had on me, both professionally and personally, and actually now also on my family, because we just I just started reading Parents Who Lead, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point. Well, I hope so. Well, thank you for that. Um, that's very gratifying to know. Um, Carmen, uh, let me just say a bit more about you before we jump into the conversation. Carmen's working to ensure that all colleagues at Marsh McLennan have a leadership mindset, which is the firm's way of encouraging each of its members, its colleagues, to approach the decisions they make as an empowered leader. This is a quest many firms have been on, many have failed. We're going to find out what's working, what's not at Marsh McLennan such that each decision, whether it's client or employee-focused, is made with a sense of purpose. How greatly important that is. Prior to her current role, Carmen held various positions within Marsh McLennan for uh, 15 years. Before that, she worked in investment banking at Bank of America and Goldman Sachs, and she began her career as a consultant with PricewaterhouseCoopers. So, Carmen, how did you get from... Uh, your start in investment banking, um, I assume it was not in the HR side of uh, the, the business. How did, you, how did you become a chief people officer of, uh, of a major firm? What was, the, what was the attraction? And I guess in brief, what was the, the turning point for you? Yeah, well, you know, clearly it wasn't a straight line. Um, I studied economics and finance um, in college and business school. And um, as you mentioned, I grew up in consulting investment banking, always on the kind of external client-facing side. But what I found, Stu, as I was starting to lead teams, was I realized that not only did I personally find tremendous fulfillment and really joy in watching people grow and develop, but I also saw that the companies that I was a part of that did that well really had a competitive advantage. And then I had the fortune of joining Marshall McLennan 15 years ago, as you said, um, through Mercer, which is a leading consultancy that's advising companies in uh, redefining the world of work, talent, shaping retirement, investment outcomes, unlocking real health and well-being. So I made the transition to HR through Mercer, through seeing the power and impact that advising organizations could have. And, um, and I was fortunate enough to be able to actually, through a chief of staff role to the former CEO of Mercer, get into the 
kind of corporate HR side of the house. So it was definitely a windy road, but, but one that was really affirmed and what I really loved doing when I was at work. Was there something about being um, on the more technical side, if I can call it that, that, that you found uh, lacking or missing in something for you? Of course, it, it brings great pleasure for others, but what, what was it that wasn't there? You know, it's interesting. I, I've always loved, you know, I loved math growing up and I started mentioning study economics. For me, me, you know what it was? Do I, and it really hit me when I was in the chief of staff role. What I found working uh, with the CEO at the time was the, the impact that the issues around people, culture, team dynamics was really having on organizations. So um, was it something that I was lacking? I'm not sure. I mean, I always loved the finance side of my job, but I, I was drawn. I was drawn to really maybe what I'll call more meaningful work as I felt, felt more gratifying to, to really see the impact an organization can have on, on someone's career over a period of time, which is mm-hmm. for me very meaningful. And on their lives, I presume. On their lives, absolutely, absolutely. Well, uh, so how long have you been in this role as, as chief people officer? So this role, I started in January of this year. So, All right. And we're, speak- we're, we're speaking now in October. Yes. Um, w- what's been the biggest shock to you w- once you started sitting in that seat? Oh. Well, you know, as I mentioned, I entered this role uh, during this time. Of, of such enormous change and challenge in the, in the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I would say the biggest shock for me coming into this role is, and this is being compared, you know, the chief financial officer role that it confronted um, the 20, 2007 financial crisis. Now, you know, this is like the moment for HR, right? In this pandemic. So I would say the biggest shocks to is the realization that I'm seeing leaders, not just in Marshall Clinton, but around the world, that lead companies come to, which I think you and I have known for a long time, which is that organizational resilience. So an organization's ability to grow, innovate, adapt, thrive is absolutely linked to the employee's resilience. So an employee's emotional, physical well-being. And so I say shock because it's something that is now for front and center mm. in the world. I'm doing a Marshall Planet, and there's a conviction around it from our leaders um, that it's not just a nice to have to make sure that employee well-being is at the front and center of what we do, but that is absolutely critical to our organization continuing to grow and thrive and contribute to society and the work that we do. So the, the surprise to you was the extent to which your colleagues in the executive suite feel a sense of urgency about these questions? Is, is that what you're saying or something else? No, I'm saying that urgency. And I would say surprise around the fact that we are putting it front and center. So the, it's the, it's not just about delivering results for the organization. It's we're going to put a stake in the ground and say, and commit to and start to measure our leaders around humanistic leadership necessary to deliver great results, but not sufficient going forward. And so we're going to lock arms around this and ensure that we are creating a mindset of the organization where we're holding each other accountable for this. So was that a part of the deal that you made with uh, the organization before taking the role? Or was it something that just uh, emerged as you began to learn more about what your priorities needed to be? In other words, did you come in saying, I'm not going to do this role unless it's really clear in budgets and time and all the things that matter in terms of, you know, what priorities are real in an organization, unless those are um, demonstrated. Uh, was that, a, was that any part of the conversation before you agreed to, to do this role? You know, I would say no, because there is already a, a, a conviction around that from the top of the house. The surprise really Stu, is the realization across the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, um, our leaders and managers that um, we actually have to lead with this and start with this. Because I would say pre-pandemic, there was a little bit more of a split, as, as you know, in many organizations around, you know, you show up at work and we're focused on work. And, and some of that outside of work conversation is not 
part of the inward conversation, what we found over the past 18 months, leader after leader saying, wow, I really got to know a team member that I didn't know a certain way. Mm-hmm. And we want to be able to bring that forward consciously. You know, we don't want to snap back to what the world was like pre-pandemic. And so this notion of really uh, creating an environment where people can bring their full selves to work is something that we're all embracing. And, and, the, re- and the surprise point really is, is just around the fact that this has permeated the entire organization. So it's, it's you know, we're, we're, feel, we're seeing um, throughout our manager-colleague relationships and conversations that that really is coming through in terms of where we are now versus where we were 18 months ago. Is this a matter of uh, retention? Uh, you know, is, is that is that sort of the business driver for a greater recognition that you've got to account for the whole person of your your colleagues, your employees, or is there something more to it? Yeah, I, I, I what I would say, Stu, is I, I think I'm, I'm being a little you know devil's advocate here because, as you know, having read my my work and oh, yeah. uh, you know familiar with the idea of total leadership as. Uh, as finding creative ways for each of us to bring our whole selves in so much as we want to, uh, to all the things that we do in a way that works for all the different parts. Um, you know, I, I, I believe in this and I, you know, I teach it, um, research it, practice it, et cetera. But I find that there's often a lot of resistance to it. And that if you don't have a clear business driver, that it's often hard to get the attention of, uh, executives in the private sector to to really take take the idea seriously yeah so i would say you know this this really comes down to values for us as an organization and you mentioned you know what i did in my the beginning of my job mm-hmm. and one of the things that i did as a primary focus um and it's not i don't say just i i did it with our ceo and the full executive committee at marshall Penn was and we are a company just set of eighty thousand colleagues, and we are united around a shared purpose, which is to make a difference in the moments that matter. That is our purpose, and we and we operate in the areas of risk strategy and people. We advise organizations, Steve, on the most pressing issues of our time around um, organizational resilience, you know, cyber risk, future of work, culture, ESG topics across the board, and so. When it comes to leadership, there we have we feel an elevated duty at the organization. So we took a lot of time at the beginning of the year to reflect on what did we learn mm. about leadership? What did we learn that really helped mm. our organization thrive over the past 18 months? And we wanted to incorporate those lessons. And it was mm. really this humanistic side of leadership that we said we wanted to consciously amplify and retain going forward. And we had a lot of debate, I will tell you, at the executive committee. Around- I want to I hear more about that. Let me just remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. My guest today is Carmen Fernandez. She's the Senior Vice President and Chief People Officer at Marsh McLennan. All right. So you, um, you, you took some time to reflect on l- leadership lessons learned what were those and what was the debate? Yes. So what they were, were was, and let me go back because, you know, one of the things that, that we talk a lot about as an executive committee and as a leadership group more broadly is in order to lead, we have to meet people where they are. So, you know, I, you know, you know, the, the saying that, you know, if you're, if you, uh, you know, you think you're leading if, if uh, you know, you're walking down a road, but no one's behind you. You're only just taking a stroll. You, know, you don't have followers behind you, right? So this idea of leading, you don't have to make sure you have followers. So in order to lead, you got to find people first to find women to meet them where they are. So we did a lot of listening, to over the course of the pandemic, a lot of surveys, a lot of pulse checking in with, with our colleagues. What do they need? What were they experiencing? And what we found was how much they value the fact that we value them. And we showed how much we valued them. We showed how much we cared about them. And that resulted in incredibly high engagement levels at our organization um, uh, as we do engagement surveys. And as we know, as colleagues are engaged, um, they are more productive um, and they're able to, you know, obviously do a, a much better job, you know, in, in many parts of their life, you know, as you write about so much through your books. So Can you give it, give an example or two about about how you demonstrated that sense of value of people in the organization that 
were particularly um, effective or resonant with um, different parts of the um, Marsh McLennan population? Absolutely. And I will just start by saying that, you know, I, I think it starts at the top. And I'll give you a great example, which is from our CEO, Dan Glazier, who is a wonderful example of this. You know, he has inspired me, I think so many colleagues across the organization in the early days of the pandemic. Dan showed us, and really the business community at large, um, how employees should be treated during this crisis. He spoke directly to our people right away. And to reassure us that Marshall McClendon was going to take care of its colleagues during the time of the crisis, that they were valued. Um, he came out and um, said he was protecting jobs and that we were going to make sure that our colleagues had the space to be able to care for their own health and the health of their loved ones at a time when everyone's health was called into question. So it was Stu coming out with um, very bold commitments to our colleagues at a time of crisis is one example. We stayed very close to our colleagues during the entire crisis. So I would say, you know, what we heard from that was our colleagues coming back and saying, you know, we felt cared for during this time. So those were inspiring words. Were there specific practices that were enacted that were, you know, direct responses to you know, the, 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 the new conditions of, of, of employment, people living at work, working from home, as well as their anxieties about uncertainties for, about their own health, their families. Um, Absolutely. There were multiple things. So you're right. I think, I think words though do matter. So I of think course. leaders coming out and saying, you know what, I'm also feeling anxious. I'm also feeling mm-hmm. like we don't have the answers, but we're not alone. So I think there's an integrity around the wars that have an impact. And then you're right, backing it up with doing things that we stopped counting sick days. We put in a ton of training and support mechanisms for our managers mm-hmm. on how to be able to lead through this very difficult time. So they were still a combination of words and actions that I believe really got to what is a fundamental foundation of a strong culture, which is trust. I, I think that, you know, we are a company that I think has high levels of trust, but it was just strengthened during this time because of how we showed up. And so at the end, our colleagues did feel very valued and cared for. And, and that's what people really are looking for. I mean, you ask about is the humanistic leadership, is it about retention? Is it about, I, I would say it's, it's really a conviction that we have as an organization around the fact that this is the right thing to do to show up to colleagues, you know, in this way. Uh, and that it, it fundamentally does create a culture of trust, which at the end is, is really the foundation for creating well, a, a, a sustainable organization. Certainly to the extent that people in positions of uh, executive authority can reveal their own uh, anxieties and fears in the face of uncertainty and um, disease and uh, the various um, things that are frightening about the world today makes it easier for uh, those who hear those words to feel um, well normalized in their, in their own uh, concerns about their lives. And, and that indeed does create a greater sense of connection mm-hmm. um, to, you know, to those in, in authority and, and to the organization more broadly. Um, you said earlier that there was some debate at, at the, you know, at the start of your tenure in terms of you know what the lessons learned were, um, what 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 would you say is you know, kind of the kernel of, of that debate? What was what was the uh, the fulcrum around which the the debate uh, occurred? Yeah, so I would say the debate was really more around how do we operationalize this? Do there was no debate around this is the right thing to be doing and saying and being able to ultimately aspire to here's the debate the debate is how do we operationalize it which is exactly actually what you talk about in your books right how do you take the total leadership framework and actually operationalize it with your stakeholders and do all the hard work so the debate was really around how do we operationalize and at what pace and what 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 levels are we going to pull in the organization uh to be able to to ultimately get to a point where everyone is embodying this. So where we ended up, Stu, in the debate was we ended up with, okay, let's make sure that we have our top 
leaders. So, and we have out of our, you know, we, we name our top leadership group, top 200 leaders mm-hmm. that we spend time with on this leadership mindset that we spend time allowing them to really internalize what this means to allow them to go on their own personal professional journey when it comes to the mindset before we kind of evangelize the rest of the organization around this. So that was really the debate was, this is the right thing to do. How do we now operationalize and more broadly mm-hmm. for 80,000 colleagues? Yeah. So, you know, could you, I, I try often in, in on our show to talk about where the resistance is because that helps, that helps listeners, that helps people interested in creating change in the world understand, uh, you know, what you need to do to, yeah. to go from you know, today's realities to a better tomorrow. Uh, so I, I wonder if you could elaborate further and if you can't, it's fine, but it's, it's always of interest on our show to get into what, what were the, you know, wh- where was the pushback and how did you, how did you work with that? Yeah. I would say the pushback Stu was again, just on the, the, the pace and scale of the rollout. Scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how quickly can we go across the organization? You know, this, this notion that, you know, we are a company that's been around, we actually have our 150th anniversary this year, which is a pretty amazing when you think about, you know, the, the number of companies on the SP 500 that are not there for 150 years, we're one of the few. And how many years? I'm sorry. I missed that. 150 years. 150. Yes. Wow. That's older than me. That is, it's, yeah, it's just a bit, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, how have, uh, so, so that legacy uh, is a powerful one. I'm sorry, please continue with what that means. Right. And the point of the legacy, it's a powerful one because we've been an innovator for 150 years across this landscape of risk strategy and people, and we have, Stu, um, performed incredibly well as an organization. So our financial performance has been very strong and we've had then as a result, the ability to invest, continue to grow. So again, going back to, you know, why change when we've been successful? You know, why even change the recipe? And that was again, part of the conversation and this notion that, you know, what got us here won't get us there. Mm -hmm. And how do we need to think differently about how we're leading? So, so, you know, the, 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 and, and, the, and when you, when, and I, again, for your listeners, I think part of this also is, I'm sure many of the leaders are, are also talking through the fact that we know things are not going to go back to normal. You know, we're, we're never going to be where we were 18 months ago. And the pace of change is so dramatic. Where does the company and organization want to take, I'm going to say risks, take different steps to change what they've done in this uncharted territory? And then again, how quickly do we want to move from what's actually made it successful, right? Mm-hmm. So this notion of now starting to measure, you know, non-financial performance factors, you know, that's something that if I had other CPOs here with me, I think everyone would nod their head and say, yeah, that's something that we are, you know, not all companies are doing that. Mm. So w- what, you brought something up that, that a lot of people are interested in that we've talked a lot about here and that is uh, in the wake of, well, the ongoing pandemic, um, things are not going to be as they were 18 months ago, you said. And so what do you think is the most important thing that we will leave behind? Hmm. Oh, I would say for those that have had the ability to reflect, mm-hmm. I think we're going to leave behind uh, rigidity. Rigidity. Yes. Hmm. Can Can you elaborate? That That seems like an important idea. Yeah. Because yes, this this has been a jolt to our collective consciousness and our operating systems. Uh, so, um, yeah. Uh, how say more about what you mean by rigidity being in being uh, in the wake of uh, what we have discovered yeah. about ourselves? And would, yeah, and I would say uh, just a short story. If someone had come to our executive committee, you know, 24 months ago and said, um, we really need to get your 80, our 80,000 employees working remotely by the end of this week. Let's make it happen. Absolutely not. We cannot do that. It's impossible. There's just going to be. Can't do it. It's, it's just impossible. There's no way that we'll be able to. Oh, really? There's no way. Mm. Not really. There, you can't find one like angle to maybe prod to find a way to do it. 
Mm-hmm. So two, rigidity is the opposite of agility. Mm-hmm. The to pivot, move quickly. Um, so I would say that is something we are leaving behind. And not only we're we leaving behind because of what we were able to accomplish over the past 18 months, but we're leaving it behind because in order to continue to thrive in the evolving and um, increasing and accelerating pace of change and speed that we have ahead of us, rigidity is something that I think is going to be necessary to leave behind. Mm -hmm. Um, We need to take a short break here, Carmen. Uh, Folks, don't go away. When we come back, I'm going to be continuing my conversation with Carmen Fernandez of Marsh McLennan. I am Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We'll be right back to continue the conversation about what we've left behind and what's in front of us and how agility and adaptability are the order of the day. See you in a few. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. This is Stu Friedman, and I'm glad you're here. I am the founder of Total Leadership, which is a management consulting and training company dedicated to helping people and organizations find, well, harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. I've been a Wharton School professor since 1984. Damn, that's a long time. And, and I've loved most all of it. My guest today is Carmen Fernandez. She's a vice president and chief people officer at Marsh McLennan, one of the world's leading professional services firms in the areas of risk, strategy, and people. And we're talking about how um, agility and adaptability are the, are the order of the day and that the, the jolt of the pandemic has really awakened people to that reality. How, how do you see that playing out, uh, Carmen, going forward, um, you know, in, in the, the days, the weeks, the months, the years to come? Well, I would say, Stu, you know, we're still in the midst, right, of, of this incredible change. And so I, I still think there's going to be what I call kind of a sorting moment over the next six to 12 months as uh, the pandemic uh, is in different stages of evolution, right, across the world. Uh, so how I see it playing out is that uh, I think the organizations um, that will thrive during this time, survive and thrive during this time, are those that really put leadership front and center uh, of, of how they show up. And when I say that, I mean that uh, as we are at Marshall kind of being very intentional about what we are doing to support our leaders to be really caring mentors and advocates for our colleagues at a time where our colleagues and so many of us around the world are going through a very challenging time. And so, you know, how I see it playing out is that, um, is that the caring and, and the very uh, clear signs and acts of, of, of care and support for colleagues is going to be, I think, the big differentiator for organizations as we continue to work through this evolving and changing landscape. Because, you know, what we ultimately want is our colleagues to feel valued and supported, to be able to continue to work right through this environment and through Mm -hmm. a lot of what is unknown. There's a lot of unknown still still ahead of us in terms Mm -hmm. of not just the, the, the health landscape of the world, but also you know, business models are evolving. Um, you know, things are shifting dramatically around the world. So, uh, so again, uh, what people are looking for is clarity and connection. And for leaders to be able to provide that, I think is key for organizations to continue to, to, to not just survive, but thrive during this time. Yeah. And uh, I, I know at the top, you, you kindly uh, shared that you have um, made use of some of the things that I've written about uh, with total leadership and most recently with parents who lead, which uh, we published uh, just at the start of the global pandemic. And it's, it's based on the essential principles of total leadership, which are that leaders at all levels uh, need to enact the principles of being real, knowing what's important 
being whole, recognizing and respecting the whole person and the key stakeholders in the different parts of life, and to be innovative, to be continually experimenting with the way things get done. And that is very much a model of innovation and adaptability and agility. We've just finished a program in a, in a big global company on agility, where this, you know, this was, we were basically teaching them the essence of this, this model, discover your values and, and your vision, articulate it, clarify it, refine it, connect with the people who matter most uh, and the groups who matter most at work, as well as at home and in the community and with yourself, and then try new ways of getting things done that enable you and the world around you to succeed in the different parts of life. And don't assume that there's always going to have to be a trade-off. But the, the essence of it is learning and adaptability and change. And I wonder if you could say just a bit more about how that model has been helpful to you. Yes, absolutely. Stu, you know, I, uh, well, I, I will tell you that I um, just believe that everything depends on leadership. So I am a huge student of leadership and I, um, and I study leadership, you know, every day. I actually try to listen to a podcast on leadership. So it's something that I believe is, is just so crucial to leaders maintaining their level of impact and effectiveness is mm-hmm. to grow. So for me, you know, I read Total Leadership a number of years ago. And what I found so compelling about it was it was at a time where um, I was um, you know, starting and building family. Um, I was working full time in my career, and uh, and I I found it to be a very grounding framework, as you say, to be able to look at and get very intentional about not only how am I spending my time, but how am I actually taking a step back and reflecting on how am I spending my time across work, home, community, mm-hmm. health, and the most powerful part of the total leadership journey for me was step one about being real, defining values. And it was an interesting process because, you know, you, when you look back at your life, right, you, 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 you're, you're a child, you grew up in your family, and you inherit values right from your family. Mm-hmm. You walk through life with those values. And then do you ever take a pause and stop and say, wait a minute, I'm an adult. I've experienced a lot of new things in life. What are mm-hmm. my values? Yes. <laughs> and what values am I going to bring from my family, my upbringing, that, and there are many in my case, that I want to hold on to and amplify. And what values do I maybe aspire to have that I don't have mm-hmm. today or that I'm working on? And so mm-hmm. it's taking a pause in your life and saying, you know, do I want to continue with these ingredients in this recipe? Do I want to add some new ingredients mm-hmm. to really have a much more intentional life? And I did that with the help of your, your work in Total Leadership um, a number of years ago. And that's really influenced um, me as a, as a person, as a mother, as a leader. And I will tell you, Steve, going back to the, the leadership's mindset at March McLennan, it's really influenced actually how I feel like I you know, partnered with our CEO and executive committee around putting our values front and center when it comes to the leadership mindset. So for mm-hmm. me, it's been so impactful not just on my personal professional journey, but I actually feel it's made, made me a much better leader and advisor to Marshall Kennedy. Well, the, the, uh, the um, commitment to discovery and to uh, consciously choosing what matters, uh, that is, is so essential for all leaders at all stages of life, whether you're first starting out or nearing the end. Um, it, it is you know, part of what makes us distinctly human and is an essential aspect of leadership. And you're clearly demonstrating um, the leadership mindset in having that openness to discovery and, and, and a, taking a more mindful approach than most of us do in the normal course of things. Uh, that's why it takes, you know, sometimes a, a bit of a jolt or just, you know, uh, a curiosity about, well, what is the life that I'm leading? Where have I come from? And where do I really want to go? And what's it going to take for me to get there? So you, so I, I, it's, it's wonderful to hear that how you're using these ideas and making them a part of your own work in life. You said also that you started to explore how 
to use the principles and tools in Parents Who Lead, which we wrote specifically for parenting partners. I wonder if you could say a bit about how that's going and what you're discovering along the way. And then I want to get into the whole uh, arena of uh, diversity and inclusion before we have to wrap. Of course. Yeah. So let me say that we are starting on the parents who lead and the, what I would say, and, you know, I'm going to just take a step back because as I mentioned, I'm, I'm a mom and I have a family. And one of the things that we've been very focused on as a family is uh, again, being intentional with our time. And so Mm-hmm. We have um, some routines. We have something called we do family meetings every Sunday where we actually spend time to with our kids, sit down, thank each other, um, give each other compliments, um, talk about how we need to support each other, come up with a plan for the next week and show gratitude. So we have these pieces that we do as a family. That's awesome. Now, could you just say uh, what is the family structure? Like how old are the people in it? And Yes, yeah, so I have a husband and I have uh, uh, two teenage boys. Okay. All right. And you managed to corral those three people and yourself. You know what? I started doing this when the kids were three and five. So uh, I'm a big fan of Jane Nielsen, positive discipline. I'm not sure if you know her work, but she Uh does a lot of work around child development. And her thing was about uh, as parenting being firm and kind with your kids and, Mm -hmm. and structure. And so we started these family meetings about 10 years ago. And at first the kids couldn't stand still, but then my, my, my husband and I would just be the ones that would be modeling. Okay. So thank you for doing this for me this week. And here's where I need your support next week. And so mm-hmm. actually Sue, it's quite now routine for us every Sunday after breakfast, we do it. That is a I, great example, but please, please continue your further thought okay, about it. I, I, I raise that is because to your point about parents who lead one of the things that kind of the next evolution of this is this shared vision mm-hmm. of the values for the family unit. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the work right now. And it's really amazing because, you know, as you know, as, as people evolve and grow up, right, they're coming into their own around the things that they value yes. right, individuals. And so how do we bring that all together mm-hmm. to be able to have a shared um, sense of values and mission and goals Mm-hmm. as a family unit. Yes. And that, again, links back to your total leadership because step one is clarity. Can we all talk about what we need from each other first so that we can actually you know, work productively together as a unit as yeah. opposed to assuming that I'm giving you what you need or I'm getting what I need? Or So I, I think a big aha for us is just communicating. Mm-hmm. As, as it is for us as leaders at work and in the community, uh, and you're right. It's not it's not a, a naturally occurring act for most people. And it does take a kind of intentionality and discipline. Um, and just just briefly, what we what we ask uh, our readers to do in Parents Who Lead is to write their own sense of uh, a better tomorrow. You know, what's a day look like 15 years from now? What happens throughout the day? Who are you with? What are you doing? What's the impact you're having, the legacy you're creating? And we ask parenting partners to do that separately and then come together to try to create a shared or collective leadership vision. And for, you know, for some people, that's the end of it. They put the book down and say, this is all we need because, you know, and in a sense, that's true. You, the main thing that you need is a shared sense of purpose. And from there, everything builds. But there is more. So please stay with it, Carmen. Yeah. Uh, let, me, let me remind listeners. Uh, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I have the pleasure today of speaking with Carmen Fernandez, who's Vice President, Chief People Officer at Marsh McLennan. Um, in the last part of our conversation here, I want to turn to um, your experience as a Latinx woman. How ha- has that informed your, your journey and, and in particular, your, your role now as Chief People Officer of an 80,000-person organization? Absolutely. Well, Stu, I will say that uh, my journey has been informed by, obviously, as for many of us, our experiences. And, and, you know, I will share my experience started very young when I was a few years, a few, four or five years old. Uh, I'm a first generation American. And uh, I went to uh, kindergarten and I didn't speak English. 
uh, very well, because uh, Spanish is my first language at home. My father was from Spain, my mother is Dominican. So I went into kindergarten and um, I wasn't fully understanding what was happening. And I felt uh, that this, this feeling of exclusion, right? And I don't think, you know, exclusion. The power, yeah, feeling excluded. You know, when, when, when you don't understand what's going on in the room, you feel excluded. Where was this? Where was this? Yeah, it, it was in the United States in New Jersey. <laughs> so. In Jersey. Yes. Okay. And no, no uh, further comment. I'm from Brooklyn. I'm not going to hold that against you. Okay. I love New Jersey and many there of its go. sons and daughters. Please continue. <laughs> but I will continue to answer your question. So um, I developed a deep desire at that point to really um, understand people around me because I, I experienced what it was like to not be mm. able to connect. So um, mm. that's really shaped, you know, who I am, um, what, what I strive to be and to do for others, which is make sure people's voices are heard. It shaped my views on inclusion um, to make sure that we're actively bringing voices in. And so, you know, my Latinx upbringing experience, I mean, has been incredibly rich and vibrant in terms of, you know, the culture that I've experienced. Um, but it's also given me still a, a profound appreciation for the other. Yeah. And how does that, I, I'm sure. Uh, and if we had another few hours, I'd like to hear more about what happened in kindergarten and how you, how you ultimately adapted, but maybe you can give us the 32nd version of what did you do as a kindergartner, not speaking the language, feeling excluded? How did you get through that? You know, it's interesting. Um, this goes to the power of leadership, right? Mm-hmm. You go back home and you share the story with, at the time, the, my parents and, you know, their response, you know, around, um, there's, a, there's a term in Spanish called palante, P-A-L-A-N-T-E, palante, which means we're going to keep moving forward. So as I told the story, what they instilled in me was just this, conviction around keep moving forward you're going to keep learning you're going to keep thriving you're going to keep striving and so mm-hmm. it was there was an inevitability that they gave me around the fact that we will you will get through this hmm. and so uh it gave you a kind of confidence that that support the the concept of palante and, and they're expressing it to you uh as i take it 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 made you believe that that you could thrive even yeah. if it was painful now is that, is that yeah. it or is it so no exactly and also I, they modeled it because my parents came to this country they did not speak english i remember mm. actually using as i got old you know cards with english word them from my father you know to be able to help him with english so there was this support that we gave to each other to help each other in that moment so and looks to a lot of hard work a lot of hard work mm-hmm. and a lot of commitment and also some levity too I think that's an important element of this. A lot of positive uh, momentum and a mm-hmm. lot of, you know, life is about hard work. It's also about having fun too. And that mm-hmm. levity also allows, I think, people to take some of that weight off the shoulders when things feel hard. So uh, I'm glad I asked uh, how, because that, that then helps me and our listeners understand how your experience informs your work. And I wonder if you could say just a bit more about how that uh, upbringing uh, shapes what you do as chief people officer with respect to the issue of inclusion. Absolutely. So, and it's, it's such a passion of mine, Stu, because I believe it's, one of the most critical things that we do as leaders is to ensure that everyone feels a sense of belonging to the organization and feels a sense of uh, connection. And what are we doing as leaders to make sure that we are actively bringing colleagues into that? I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about diversity, inclusion, and belonging, but, you know, I start with belonging and belonging is really about, people being able to bring their full self to work, being able to be uh, uniquely themselves at work. And if we're able to create that culture of belonging, which leaders actively, they play an active and very visible role to do that, then actually the diversity and inclusion will follow. You know, I like to say that um, 
that actually metrics and data around diversity are a lagging indicator to having a culture of inclusion and belonging. Once you have that culture, you will be able to attract and retain the diverse talent. Right. What's what's the most critical thing that that people, especially those in executive roles, can do to to uh, advance the cause of a greater sense of belonging in their organizations, in their groups, in their teams? I would say the number one thing, Stu, is is building a strong culture of trust. Trust is the foundation of any strong culture. And actually, you know, there's there are a few simple questions that that people ask of their managers or leaders. The first one is, um, can I trust you? Are you someone that has integrity, right? The second question is- Are you someone who has what? Can you repeat that? You're someone that um, is, has integrity around mm-hmm. what you say. Is, is, is what you're saying and what you're doing aligned, right? So trust is number one. The second one that people ask of their leaders is, can I learn something from you? Are you someone that I feel like I can grow with? And the third question is, do you care about me? Are you someone that, that shows that you care about me, that you value me? And so we focus on those three questions, trust, learning, and caring, because that's really what people are looking for. That, that's how leaders get followers. That, that's how people stay connected to an organization. And so, you know, there are simple things, Stu, that leaders can do, uh, mm-hmm. such as, defaulting to autonomy. You know, there's a lot of research out there, right, that, that, that is about giving people autonomy, giving them flexibility. Um, that, that is a huge driver of people performing well and feeling, right, a sense of empowerment. Um, secondly is simple but important is saying thank you. When you say thank you and you show gratitude across an organization, it has a tremendous ripple effect People feel valued when you say thank you. And it sounds simple, but it's powerful. Mm -hmm. The other one I would say that's also important is is being able to focus not so much on the how, but on the why of the work to make the work meaningful, you know, for colleagues. So these are things that, um, that are important for how leaders show up with their team members to have their team members feel uh, both valued and included. And, and where do you find executives struggling the most in being able to enact those, those practices? What, what's the hardest part of it? Stu, I would say it's the mindset shift. It's, it's creating the space to do it. It's, you know, we all run into our meetings and we start top of the hour. Okay, let's jump into the, the numbers and the, the, the topics on the agenda. And I think the hardest thing is, is being intentional about it, right? Is saying, we're going to pause and we're going to spend the first 10 minutes of our meeting saying, sending an email to people that we want to thank across the organization. And then we're going to talk about who we sent the email to. Oh, wow. And we've done that. And it's powerful. And we have leaders imagine. across the organization that are doing that. And imagine that. So imagine an organization taking a moment, 10 minutes in the beginning of a meeting with a number of leaders saying, before we start, everyone send an email to somebody else in the company and thank them for something. Mm-hmm. And then let's come back and let's share with each other what we thank the individual for. And we're going to do two things. We're going to create an incredible ripple effect of gratitude. Mm-hmm. So valued. And then we're going to learn from each other about the incredible work that our colleagues are doing across the organization. What a powerful moment. Well, and you, you're creating a sense of uh, common humanity and an, and an appreciation for, you know, the, the people next to you, which is so easy to take for granted. And, uh, and, and at the same time, not that difficult to cultivate, as you've described in that wonderful example. Uh, it doesn't take long to do what you just described and the benefits perhaps intangible in many ways, I can imagine being extremely powerful. Uh, thanks for sharing that good idea, um, that, very, that very practical example. We, we only have about a minute or so left. As you think about 
you know, the future of not just Marsh McLennan, but just the corporate landscape generally, what do you, what do you hope we're going to be talking about 10 years from now when we, when we meet again, uh, hopefully sooner than that, but if we were to have a conversation 10 years from now, what do you, what will we be talking about? Well, I hope, Stuart, I look forward to talking to you in 10 years. So thank you for the uh, invite. <laughs> Open invitation. Exactly. Thank you. I would hope that we are talking about how we've been able to both augment and amplify what is uniquely powerful about us as human beings um, as we work through and learn how to uh, partner with technology in the workplace. So I think we're going to have a big conversation in 10 years about how we've been able to navigate this evolution of uh, technology and human interaction. And my hope is that we're actually going to augment and amplify things like empathy, things like connection that we've been talking about, Steve. Carmen, we... That's I can't wait for that conversation. We are uh, at the end of our time. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Uh, really appreciate your time and attention and the leadership uh, that you're demonstrating at Marsh McLennan. Thanks again. Thank you, Stu. It's a pleasure. And thank you for listening in. Don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. And if you have a question about something you heard on the show, email me. I'm easy to find. It's friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. You can also find me on LinkedIn. Our station is at Business Radio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow our show on Twitter at SXM Business. I'm at Stu Friedman. And uh, you can find free versions of the show um, a week or so later at TotalLeadership.org. All kinds of free stuff there about how we help people and organizations find creative ways to build harmony and improve performance in their lives and at work. Thanks, Patty Hall, Chris Tooks for making it all happen. I'm Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.